Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Eden Mills Writers' Festival presents Taste and Transmission, an evening of music and literature at Guelph's E-Bar on Thursday, September 11th. This event features rare full-band performances by local luminary Scott Merritt and Toronto's gifted Sandro Perry, plus stimulating readings and discussion by internationally renowned authors and music writers Carl Wilson and Shawn Michaels. Tickets to this all-ages licensed event are available now at the bookshelf, located beneath the E-Bar at 41 Quebec Street in Guelph and at ticketbreak.com. Visit EdenMillsWritersFestival.ca for more information about taste and transmission on September 11th. Despite its best efforts, the E-Bar is not a fully accessible physical space. Dragonfly, Dragonfly Creative Control with Beach Comic. On this episode, Elizabeth DeMariaffi of St. John's, Newfoundland is on the show. Elizabeth's a very gifted writer. She's a poet and a short story writer. She wrote a book called How to Get Along with Women that uh, was nominated for the 2013 Giller Prize. And I actually know Elizabeth from Guelph. It seems like I can't talk to anyone without some vague Guelph collection. She lived, uh, connection, rather. She lived here for a short spell. But she is in St. John's now, and she will be reading at the 2014 Eden Mills Writers Festival on Sunday, September 14th at Eden Mills. So I thought I would catch up with her to find out what's going on. It turns out she's got a brand new novel coming out in the new year, and it's a thriller. Sounds very exciting. So, yeah, we just had a nice chat about her life and her work, and uh, I I hope you'll enjoy it. This is myself and Elizabeth DeMariaffi. Hey, this week's episode is brought to you by Pizza Trocadero. For my money, the best pizza you can eat in Guelph, Ontario. A proud, independent family business run by a punk rocker, Trocadero only uses a rich array of fresh ingredients cut by hand and homemade dough made daily, all baked to perfection inside of a stone oven. It's gourmet panzerotti, calzones, wings, salads, garlic bread, breadsticks, and oh man, the pizza, the pizza. Personally... I like the gourmet Domateo with goat cheese, artichoke, roasted red pepper, mushrooms. I sub out the turkey breast for eggplant, but that's just me. Wash the whole thing down with a brio. Man, I am getting hungry just talking about this. Call Pizza Trocadero at 519-829-2444. Visit them at 7 Municipal Street in Guelph and online at trocaderoguelph.ca. T-R-O-K-A-D-E-R-O. G-U-E-L-P-H dot C-A That's Pizza Trocadero A place of the good trade Elizabeth de Mariaffi is a gifted writer and poet who lives in St. John's, Newfoundland. Her 2012 short story collection, How to Get Along with Women, 
is extraordinarily moving, emotionally jarring, texturally precise, and it was long listed for the 2013 Giller Prize with good reason. Elizabeth's work has been featured in prominent periodicals, and her story, Kiss Me Like I'm the Last Man on Earth, was nominated for a 2013 National Magazine Award. She's also one of the founders of Toronto Poetry Vendors, a small press that sells single poems by established Canadian poets through Toonie vending machines. The Mariafi has a new novel coming out this January by a HarperCollins Canada called The Devil You Know, and she's appearing at the Eden Mills Writers' Festival on Sunday, September 14th. Here to discuss some of these things is Elizabeth de Mariafia. Hi, Elizabeth. How are you? Hi, Vish. I'm great. How are you? I'm hot. It's very, <laughs> it's extremely hot here. I'm sweating in my house talking to you. Oh. Are you. Where are you? I should ask you that first of all. I'm in my dining room um, in St. John's. And September is really one of my favorite months in St. John's, so it's just positively gorgeous right now. It's like 24 degrees and sunny and, you know, we don't get the humidity here that you get in Ontario. So, you know, every time the sun comes out, it's sort of fantastic. Yeah, I, I only tend to be in St. John's uh, in April because I get invited to be present at that Lanya Vanya Arts Festival. April I, is a cruel month, St. John's. <laughs> there's, there's no question. <laughs> April is a bit rough. It's Well, I've had good days. It's just inconsistent, right? Yeah, no, inconsistent is a good word for it. <laughs> yeah, it's going to rain. There might be, someone said there might be snow. I didn't know how to pack the first time I went. <laughs> now, I, I know you as someone who seemed to live in Guelph. That's where you and I first met, like, many years ago now, maybe 10 years ago. That's true. I lived in Guelph for, um, well, actually, I, I did my bachelor's degree in Guelph in the mid-90s. So I was there for three or four years in the mid-90s and then uh, came back um, in 99 after my daughter was born because it was such a nice community. And I lived there for, I think, nine or ten years at that point um, mm. before uh, heading back to Toronto, which is where I was born for a few years and, and now in St. John's. Okay, so how did you, how do you, how does one go from Toronto to Guelph to St. John's. How, how, why are you in St. John's, Newfoundland? Mostly for love. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, but I think it's sort of a, a double-edged love sword in that uh, St. John's is very easy to fall in love with as a place as well. Um, but I was, I had a day job for a year um, as, you know, every writer has a roster of day jobs. So, you know, aside from sort of freelancing as a proofreader and a copy editor and a manuscript evaluator, um, I decided that a really great day job for me would be uh, flight attending. Oh, wow. Um, which which is probably more true for people who are not single mothers as well. <laughs> but um, but I spent a year working for a Porter um, Airlines out of downtown Toronto, which is actually a great airline to work for. And I had a really good time in the year that I was there. And um, I had never been to St. John's, and I was quite intrigued to go. Uh, so it was one of the first places that I sort of bid on um, as, a, as a schedule. And um, immediately somebody tried to set me up not set me up, but, you know, introduce me to uh, George Murray, who is he's actually the, he, I was going to say, who is a poet from St. John's. He is actually now the Poet Laureate of St. John's, but he wasn't at that time. Oh, wow. Congratulations. Um, but, um, and I knew George because, I didn't know him, but I knew him through Book Ninja. Um, I don't know if you ever followed Book Ninja, but it was yeah. a really popular blog for many years um, that, you know, provided a great service to the literary community. And, and Book Ninja used to be my homepage, actually, at one point. So, uh, you know, when uh, when I got this introduction, I actually immediately avoided it <laughs> because, <laughs> because I was a bit of a fan. Um, but I ended up meeting George at the Trillium Awards in Toronto a couple of months later. And because I was working for an airline, it, it made a long-distance relationship sort of feasible and and um, well, certainly feasible and, in fact, quite easy compared to other people's long-distance relationships. And I, I don't know how feasible it would have been if I hadn't been doing that for that year. Um, and then, you know, I was coming back and forth to St. John's and immediately loving it and immediately loving all the people here. And um, so it, it was a really easy transition to make. And you know, I don't think very many people get that opportunity or give themselves the opportunity, you know, in their mid-30s to, to say, okay, now we're going to go live on an island in the middle of the North Atlantic. Now we're going to go do this. And I had two children who were, at the time, I'm trying to think of how old they were, um, they were, I think, 11 and 13, um, and they were, like, remarkably amenable to this. You know, I said, I think we should, we'd, we'd been talking about moving to the East Coast for other reasons as well, um, 
Porter had just opened a, a base in Halifax at the time, and um, and I was looking at getting out of Toronto just because of the in- enormous cost of living there. Yeah. Um, and uh, and my daughter, particularly, you know, was very self possessed at thirteen, and she said, "Well, all right, mommy, if we're going to do that, then we should do that when I finish grade eight, and when Desmond finishes grade six, and then you know that will be the perfect time to move someplace new." And I went, "Okay, well, if that's the case, then we should really think about this because you know that's coming up," and. Um, and so the, the timing was just remarkably good. And I, I had no resistance from the kids. And wow. it, it was, a, a you know, it was kind of a crazy, a bit of a crazy whirlwind, you know. And then I packed up my dog and, uh, you know, George came to Ontario. And we packed up the house and packed up the dog and drove across country and put the dog on the ferry. It was excellent. It was, it was a good time. That's awesome. And, and so you've been, and you, did you not just get married? We just got married uh, like two weeks ago. Not even two weeks ago. I think our two congratulations. That's amazing. <laughs> Thank you. the The bouquet is still fresh. Well, not quite, but it's, it's pretty close. It's still in a vase. Well, you and I have like, we have so we have this interesting history. I think uh, on some level, I used to work at Ed Video Media Arts Center in Guelph, and you used to come in there. I think to do something. You were did you, were you set up as a member? I was set up as a member, and I did a little bit of uh, training, um, like editing training, uh, which unfortunately I really haven't had a, much of a chance to pursue in, in the interim, um, but is still really of interest to me. Um, and I think, I think especially short stories translate so well to film. Yeah. Um, and I think so much of the way I write especially the short stories, although I did find the same thing in the novel that I was really spending a lot of time thinking about films and, and how things are shot in movies and often, um, and dialogue. Dialogue is really, really important to me. So I thought either, you know, at some point I'd love to, to try my hand at, at doing some short films or, uh, you know, possibly playwriting, although I think playwriting is such a huge skill. Um, I'm, I'm not sure that, I'm not sure that what I do really translates to that as well as it might translate to film. So you so you you got into film as an early outlet for these creative impulses, or were you even writing at that time? No, I was writing. I mean, I've sort of been writing, you know, sort of forever. I guess I was writing poetry, you know, through the late '90s, and and you know, when my kids were young, I, I wrote a lot of poetry and um, and was published in magazines and applied to the MFA that the University of Guelph offers at the Humber Com- campus in Toronto when they were a bit older, uh, when everybody was in school. Um, and I applied as a poet and I really left as a fiction writer. I really hadn't written any fiction. It wasn't a thing I was doing. Um, and I, you have to take two genres when you do um, a, a program like that. They, they, they won't let you just do poetry. Right. Um, so I took a short story class with Michael Winter and was just, you know, immediately sold. Um, and on top of that, Michael kept saying to me, I really don't think you're a poet. <laughs> it sort of say it in the most charming way possible. Um, and, uh, and I believed this so strongly that I actually went to my advisors and said, I, I think I'd like to switch. I think I'd like my thesis to, to be in fiction. And they kind of said, oh, well, we really let you in as a poet, <laughs> so, oh. um, which was, you know, in some ways really good. I ended up doing a, a poetry thesis with Dion Brand, um, and you know, anybody who has the chance to work with Dion Brand is she's such a phenomenally great teacher and and such a, um, a sharp sharp writer. Um, you know, that was. I, I think it was sort of the best use of my time. And I even, so it's, I'm in this odd position now where I have this poetry thesis and I actually don't write poetry anymore, but that the work that I did with Dion informs my fiction so strongly because, you know, because she is such a good teacher of writing. Yeah, no, I can see that. Well, that, that's, that's fascinating to me. I was going to say the last time, so we met at Ed Video and the last time you and I met, I think it was on a plane. I was coming back from St. John's and, and I had yeah, my pillbox hat on. I'm yes, pretty sure. That's right. <laughs> I think that's the last time we were we we sort of physically saw each other and I was and then the next thing I know you're telling me you got a book and uh <laughs> I was very surprised. I just didn't know that you did all of these things. I mean, so w- w- at what point were you just focused on writing? Was it shortly after the MFA? Yeah. Well, I started writing the short stories in the MFA and had really good success placing them in magazines right away. Um and then, um, I guess in the following year, I was 
mostly working freelance, uh, proofreading and copy editing and doing whatever kind of you know, publishing freelance work I could pick up. Um, and I also got a really generous grant uh, from the Ontario Arts Council that really made it possible for me to, and I was really mercenary about it. Like I got this grant and I went, okay, so this is going to be, you know, X percentage of my work time. Yeah is represented by this grant money. And, and so as a result, this many hours of work time per week, our short story writing time. Um, and being mercenary about it that way was really what did it. And I think often, you know, when you, especially if you have children, like, like, and you know this now yourself, that like there's this tremendous money drain that comes yeah. with children. Um, so it was, it was something that I had to work on really, you know, to, to make sure that I kept picking up freelance work and I didn't drop that just because I had, you know, money that would have lasted us for a few months. Um, but as a result, I ended up having, you know, I really gave myself a bank of time to work on the short stories and, uh, and then suddenly I had a collection. Um, and I had a, an agent um, be very interested in the collection from the get-go. Um, you know, my friend Zoe Whittall pointed me in the direction of her agent, who's Sam Haywood at Transatlantic. Um, and Sam immediately loved the stories and was immediately so positive about a, a relationship with me um, you know, that continues very positively to this day. Wow. Uh, Sam's a great big help to me. So, um, so I was very lucky in that way to, to have friends to point me in the right direction and, and to, to have an agent take me on at the short story level, which to be honest with you is fairly rare. Like I, I feel quite lucky about that. Yeah. I don't get the impression that the short story collections are the easiest thing to market. They're really hard to sell. I mean, I, and I work in my day job now is in marketing. Um, I work for Breakwater Books in marketing, which is a, an indie press out here. Um, and I, I'll be honest with you. I mean, you know, short stories and poetry are hard to sell. It's, it's, you know, it's hard to talk your operations manager into picking them up because of that. And as a marketer, it's hard to do. So, um, so to have an agent be interested at that time it, it's really more of an investment you know and you, you could sort of feel that there was an investment in my career an investment in in you know the the novels that would hopefully come <laughs> in the future i was going to say like do you end up in converse as a short story writer as you were initially uh do you end up in conversations with agents who say like this story is great you think you could flesh it out a little bit like do you get that pressure or um yeah, no, I mean, I didn't really shop around for agents because I, I sort of got the, got, you know, a big hug from Sam right from the beginning. But um, but what I did find was that when I was working on short stories, the number one question that, like, anyone, you know, as soon as you get your 10 minutes into a conversation, the first thing they're saying to you is, so, when's the novel? Are you working on a novel? <laughs> when's the novel going to be? And I spent the first, I mean, I was really like, I learned to write fiction by writing the short stories that were in that collection in the end. I mean, it, I certainly threw some stories away, but that, that project that I was working on was me learning to write fiction to a certain extent. And at the time that was such a, a you know, a big job um, and a big learning curve um, that I couldn't even imagine the idea. Like a short story, I feel like I can hold it in my hand and I can see the whole thing at once and I can see how, you know, if I pull the string over here in the first few pages that that it affects what happens in the last few pages, which is, I think, why it feels like it works as a film to me so mm. clearly. Um, and uh, and so it took me a long time just to to stop I guess, stonewalling myself on the idea of writing a novel. Um, I mean, because you, I, you have to apply so many of the same principles, I assume, but at the same time, the scope and scale, I mean, you need a certain amount of fortitude to, to carry on, right? The scope and scale and, and what's going to motivate, the like what's going to drive the novel, right? Like a, like a 10-page or even a 20-page short story. Um, I, I guess what I was worried about was, I'd hate to be someone who writes a good short story and, and kind of a boring novel. <laughs> right. Um, and what I said at the time, I did a lot of talking about this, and I have some really you know, great friends who are excellent short story writers. Um, you know, Miranda Hill is a really good friend, and Carrie Snyder, um, who, who lives in Waterloo, is, is, a, is a friend. And, um, and I did a lot of conversation. These were mostly, at the time, they were mainly internet <laughs> friends. Yeah. And I, would, I would just, but I was always sort of, you know, trying to hammer this out. Um, and one of the things that I used to say was, you know, I don't want, like, I really didn't want to write a boring novel. And I mean, you take a look at what Alice Munro does. Alice Munro does more in a 30-page story than is what is accomplished in many full-length novels. So 
how do you take that kind of drive, the kind of drive and momentum and, and tension that you have in a short story, and how does that apply to the novel? It can't, you can't maintain that high level of tension for 300 pages because it would just be, um, I don't think it would be interesting to the reader either. So it, you're looking at a whole other sort of ebb and flow, and, and there has to be you know, other things going on. So I spent a lot of time thinking about that. Um, and one of the people I complained to actually was Michael Winter, um, who had taught me to read short stories. And he wasn't very sympathetic. Um, and eventually he just, <laughs> he'd say really sort of unhelpful things like, well, you know, in, in some ways a novel is easier than writing a collection of short stories because you only have to come up with one arc <laughs> instead of like 10 stories. Yeah. Right. And, and I, you know, and I, I'd kind of walk away and I'd say, yes, but. But it's that one arc I can't get. And eventually he just sort of said, you know what? In a novel, you have to have one thing happen over here and this other thing happens over here. And then you got to get the two of them together. And, and actually, that's the principle I applied writing this novel, um, which really worked for me. And I'm not sure if that would make sense to anybody else. But it, it, you know, it, it was sort of the thing that you know, at least made me stop complaining and start working again. Is it a particularly short novel? It is not. It's I would a, say it, I would say it's an average length novel. <laughs> I just wonder if that's the logical extension. Yeah, I wrote a novel. It's not as long as most novels, but it's a, <laughs> you know it's a shorter novel. I just it's wonder. Novelish. It's not exactly. <laughs> uh, it's interesting to hear you talk about this process and the difficulty there. I, you mentioned that you're from Toronto originally. Can you talk a little bit about what your upbringing was like? Sure. Um, yeah, I grew up sort of in in Midtown Toronto. Um, in uh, in a family, I, I guess an immigrant family, I guess that's what you'd call it. Uh, my mom was a refugee from Hungary in the early 50s. So they left actually before 56. Most Hungarians left in 56 when the, the wall came down very briefly. Right. Um, but they had quite a, a dramatic escape story when she was nine years old. And my father's from Transylvania, which is a real place. Um, and that has a very large ethnic Hungarian population, but now belongs to Romania. Um, and uh, he's a bit older than my mom and left in 44 when the Germans came in. Um, so, I mean, that was my, my, that was my immediate family. It was my parents. And I had a grandmother um, who has since passed on, sadly, uh, who was my mother's mother. And sh- my grandfather, uh, who was actually her second husband, um, but I didn't know my real grandfather. And the grandfather I knew was um, a Viennese pianist and, and one of the most lovely pers- people I've ever known, really. Uh, but there were, no, there were no siblings and there were no cousins. I didn't have any sort of extended family um, except in Europe. And every couple of years, we'd go back to Europe and we'd kind of land in Paris. And my dad would have a car there on lease. And we'd get in the car and we'd just start driving across Europe, stopping, you know, every half country or so because there was relatives sort of sprinkled across Europe, you know, like when, yeah. when the Russians came in, everybody left and they left in varying degrees <laughs> and some people hadn't left at all. So, you know, we, we would go into Hungary um, and we didn't really go in. I think we went to Romania when I was about four, uh, but the government there was, uh, of course, it was a much more austere regime and, um, and it was not as safe a place to go. Um, but Hungary in the 80s was kind of an interesting, it was an interesting experience, you know, growing up with a, a sort of a Cold War um, cognizance as a kid, you know, in the middle of, in the middle of the eighties, which was such a rah-rah America kind of time. Um, you know, I, I think I felt quite divided at times. Um, so yeah, so that was kind of the house I grew up in and there was, you know, it was often people visiting and people were always speaking different languages. You know, my, my parents each speak about four languages and it was, as a result, I kind of speak four languages, not as well as I used to, um, cause I don't get the practice, but you know, because that was, that was it. Like you either had to kind of learn or keep up, you know, <laughs> what, what, <laughs> what was going on in the living room. What were the languages? Uh, um, Hungarian, German, French. Uh, my dad speaks Romanian. It wasn't a lot of Romanian, but okay, every now okay. and then, um, you know, European languages. <laughs> so, you, okay. And you, you're somewhat fluent in each of them. I do pretty well. My French is excellent. I spend a lot of time in France. My my dad's closest um, closest cousin, who I guess he grew up with, like a brother, was in Paris. So we spent a lot of time there. Okay. Um, and was your family part of a, a community of uh, Hungarian expats or anything like that? Sort of. You know, we would do there. There, there was some of that. Um, we certainly had relatives. We spent time with, sort of like um, very. 
very distant relations <laughs> by Canadian standards, you know. So the people I referred to as my cousins were like fourth cousins. Yeah. Um, but so there was some of that. And there was, there's a, uh, there's a Hungarian house in, in Toronto, a Hungarian club called the Hungarian house uh, that has a sort of a supper club. And, and we, there was a few Hungarian restaurants that we'd go to. Um, but aside from that, I didn't feel very connected to the community. I didn't have to go to Hungarian school, you know, which many, many children did. Um, so, and, you know, because my father was from Transylvania, they sort of considered themselves a bit different. <laughs> so, right. <laughs> so as a result, we kind of weren't, you know, part of the regular Hungarian set in some ways. Okay. So, you, so did you feel alienated? You didn't feel alienated from the sort of quote-unquote Canadian kids uh, any more than you did from your own cultural background? No, yeah. I, I don't think that I, I don't think I felt like a, super alienated. I did feel like a little bit, you know, a little bit different. I, where I grew up in Midtown Toronto, I, I used to say like everybody's last name was, you know, Fitzpatrick yeah, <laughs> or, yeah. or something. And mine was not. Um, and, uh, you know, so all, all that sort of regular kind of immigrant kid, I don't, I think that experience is probably fairly continuous a- across ethnicities. Um, you know, in terms of, you know, everyone eats different food and there's a different language yeah. in your house. Yeah. Or, but, Okay, I just wonder because I do see these these tropes of belonging and identity and <laughs> and sort of politics uh, kind of coming up in in your work, and I just wonder if it was drawn from from your upbringing in any way. I imagine to some extent, you know, I, I think that I I did really spend time with, um, you know, obviously, I mean, if you read the short stories, I obviously have some big interest in identity and power and how those two things go together and. Um, and that experience of going across the border into Hungary, you know, so there was a kind of a, a, a kind of a discontinuity between what I was being told Hungary was like, well, here is what it's like, right? And it, the, and these are stories like pre-war stories, you know, and especially my dad's stories about Transylvania, yeah. um, you know, were were sort of very fabulous. Uh, but then when you actually cross the border into Hungary, you know, we'd, we'd stop in Austria at the big metro store. Um, and we didn't have anything like this in Canada at that time. But this was like, it was like what became the superstore store in North America. And, you know, but in the 80s, it was like crazy. <laughs> you get groceries and TVs all in the same place. Right. right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and we'd go there and there'd be like an entire aisle that was just chocolate. And we'd, you know, buy chocolate and coffee and, and all this stuff. And then we'd go line up at the border and it would take you four hours to get across the border into Hungary. And all this coffee and chocolate and whatever else we were bringing, those are the things I remember the most, clothing, um, we were being brought in for all the relatives that lived in Hungary because they couldn't get coffee in Hungary and they couldn't get this and they couldn't get that. And, and you had to, you know, sign on to a waiting list and it might take you seven years to get a car. Um, so coming from a North American perspective, there was a huge discontinuity between what I was being told Hungary was like and what it was in my experience as a child, you know, and as a child, you're, you just want stuff. Yeah, you know, yeah. so um, and it was and it was very gray. You know, Budapest was terribly bombed uh, compared to some other cities. So, you know, there was it was I, I spent a lot of time, I think, trying to um, find the equal sign. <laughs> yeah, you know, between what I was being told and what I was actually perceiving. And sorry, how how long or how often did you visit Hungary? I think you mentioned this earlier, but it's. We'd go every year or two, but when we went to Europe, we'd go for like six or seven weeks. My mom was a teacher, and so she had the ability to be off for the summer, and my father always worked for himself and, you know, managed to do that. So we were we were gone for a long time. So you you were gone long enough to get a real sense of how things were going. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you could, and you could totally tell, you know, as things got better and changed, you know, as I was going through high school and, you know, the Berlin Wall fell and, yeah. and so many things changed. And when I was 20, gosh, I think I was 22 when I finally went back to Transylvania with my dad um, for the first time. And then I went again the following year. And that was, that was really big news that we could go back there. Right. So. Okay. So, and, and so, okay, that, that, that makes sense. You know, when I first received my copy of How to Get Along with Women, I presumed from the title that it might be funny. It might be some kind of lark, you know? Ah, <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. No, no. And I remember even like pitching it to a, a book show about talking about it because they often got me to be like 
wacky and funny about books. And I was like, yeah, well, there's this book, How to Get Along with Women. I'm going to dig into it. Then I read it and I realized it wasn't actually, you know, like, ha, 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 funny. It uh, <laughs> it, it was, as we've discussed, it, it has a lot to do with power dynamics and in, in many different forms. What does the title of this book convey to you about these stories? Um, well, the, the title comes directly, so it, it's the title of one of the stories, as mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and the title of that story. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Comes out of a... It, it's it's a line in the story, a story that is really sort of a very removed portrait of a, a relationship between a young couple. So at that moment when you're learning how to be an adult, that first relationship that you have and the power dynamics between them. Um, and the girl is referred to at one point by someone else as saying she doesn't know how to get along with women. Mm-hmm. Which is really funny uh, because I, I don't think anyone kind of cottons onto that very easily that when you see how to get along with women, everyone assumes it's about men. Um, but, you know, I just, it's really interesting, you know, like writing those stories in the end, only one of the stories really has a protagonist who's not female and he's a, a young boy. Yeah. Um, but he's got a mother who's very key to his life. Um, and I guess I just started to think about, you know, all, all the different, I guess all the different versions of women in your life. It's not just about women getting along with men, but it's, you know, it's how women get along with women and it's how women get along with women in friendship relationships and romantic relationships and how women get along with men in romantic relationships and how they get out of them and, um, and how children, you know, reenact that in their play, how children are trying to figure out how to get along, you know, yeah. and how this is supposed to go. Um, so I suppose that's why it just really felt like it fit to me. You know, I, I had sort of, I had a, I had a working title that was different on the collection until I sort of had the whole thing together. And all of a sudden I looked at it and I went, no, this really has to be the title for the collection because that it, it encompasses it much better. Yeah. We've been talking a little bit about your background and perhaps things that may have informed where you're at or where you were at when you, might have conceived of these stories. And as I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of stuff here about the politics of our day-to-day existence. And, you know, politics is an umbrella term for waking up every morning, dealing mm-hmm. with people, uh, you know, make, making your way in the world. What specifically drew you to explore this? Well, I don't think that was a conscious choice. I think that's probably what I what I think about and and talk about on some level just in you know that's that's what my conscious and unconscious is working on all the time that's what I assumed (laughs) how how does this work how you know um that that's what I would say it was you know I, I really would strongly argue that anyone who's sitting down to write a story that is about an issue is probably going to write a pretty bad story so hmm. um, so for me, I think the voice in all those stories came first, but the fact that it, you know, clearly that, that book is, you know, a year or two years, um, let's say two years of me really sitting down and trying to, to work out some stuff about power. Um, and is it, is it drawn from personal experiences? Is it drawn from some of the anecdotal stuff about yeah, there's a lot of coming of age stuff, which I think is when you come of age, that's when you really get a sense of what power is. Absolutely. Uh, you know, Absolutely. and feeling empowered yourself. So I can only presume that some of this is drawn from your own experiences. 
Absolutely. I don't think there's any avoiding that. There's, you know, it wouldn't matter how much you tried to model a story on something else, you know, things from your own experience would creep in. Um, and they creep in sometimes in, you know, sometimes in, in fairly obvious ways. So there's, um, you know, in Kiss Me Like I'm the Last Man on Earth, that is a story about a Hungarian kid growing up in Toronto. Yeah. Uh, right. And, um, you know, and so obviously there's a lot that is really obviously drawn from my real experience in that story. Um, and then other things later on that, that might seem very removed, but you know, the, the story, um, the astonishing Abercrombie, which is written from the perspective of a, of a young boy, um, whose mother has just, you know, his mother abandons the family basically. And he's, he's spending, you know, 20 pages trying to figure this out, trying to figure out his mother abandoning the family. Um, you know, obviously, I am not a young boy, nor have you know, I ever been abandoned or abandoned my family. But, um, but I was really doing a lot of thinking at the time I had a son. And, you know, I was really doing a lot of thinking about him. And that's sort of just, I think, how it came out. Um, you know, and, and there's, there's weird bits of that story that are drawn from personal experience. There's um, the, uh, the grandfather in it is uh, always trying to record his, his dead wife. <laughs> Right. Um, and, you know, I had a grandmother who really did do that, uh, you know, set out tape recorders at night to try and you know, catch ghostly activity um, and that kind of thing. So, you know, those those little pieces. Um, but, I, you know, I don't think you could say any of it. You know, fiction is not a biography, but it, it seems to be hard for people to understand that. Yeah. And I mean, when I think of uh, the story that you alluded to earlier, Kiss Me Like I'm the Last Man on Earth or uh, potentially even He Ate His... Uh, french fries in a light-hearted way mm -hmm. that dynamic between platonic and romantic relationships kind of comes up uh, and that kind of that to me that negotiation between maybe moving from one to the other and back again or whatever that seems to be something that you uh were grappling with i think that that is a massive issue um let's say through high school and into the early 20s um I think there's a there's a lot of that, and that's about figuring out relationships and figuring out how much of a relationship you want, and figuring out. And I think it's the power dynamic. Like I think, you know, like <laughs> agree with me or not, I I find a lot of power dynamics in relationships, um, and I'm really they're not, uh, but they're not all necessarily gendered, are they? No, they're not all gendered. I mean, okay. I think I think there's there's I think power is present anytime you have two personalities there's power present if i take my dog for a walk right right of course uh you know there's, there's no question and i just find it really fascinating like i find you know you know why do we make decisions you know around like you know why do i give one person one part of me and an, another person a different part of me and yeah uh, i find that really interesting and i think specifically in those two stories there is a lot of exchange of power going on a lot of you know trying to figure out, you know, what, what makes me feel good? What makes me feel better here? Is it, is it, you know, giving my power away or is it holding all the power? Right. And in some cases, giving up your power is, is giving into a relationship. Uh, you know, uh, we're, we're, we're an item now. <laughs> I, I've lost, <laughs> I've lost a little bit of agency because I've committed to one person mm -hmm. or, or one, you know, circumstance. So I think, yeah, anyway, I find it interesting that you've explored it so often, and, and that seems to be uh, something that, at least at this point, I mean, I guess my, was this any kind of resolution for you of these issues? Does it, is it still something that uh, comes to the surface when you're thinking about, you know, stuff in the morning, in the, in the afternoon, and in the night? Let's not leave out the night here. <laughs> I'm just babbling, but do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do know what you mean. Um I'm kind of interested to see what happens. Like, I would, I would love to sit down and write a few short stories again, and I haven't done that um, since working on the novel. I just kind of took some time to not write fiction. Um, I'm kind of interested to see if that's still what I'm interested in, or if it's shifted in any way. Um, you know, I, I ended up working on this novel that, you know, I think is is about fear to a certain extent. Um, and you know, fear might be the flip side of power. It might be part of the same. Well, it's part of the, it's, yeah, it's definitely, that's the pole. It's, it's, part, <laughs> it's part of the spectrum. It's yeah. part of the spectrum, right? Yeah. So 
Um, so, you know, <laughs> I don't know. You know, I think, I think writers, I think all artists have um, things that fascinate them that they keep coming back to. Um, so this might be mine, but you'll have to wait and see, I guess. Yeah, we'll find out in January. I, I did, it felt like um, How to Get Along with Women was out for a while when I suddenly heard it was long-listed for the Giller Prize. Um, you can correct me if I'm wrong about the chronology. It probably was just a natural course of action, but I remember getting an arc of the book uh, an advanced reading copy and and then liking it, but then not knowing what to do with it with my various outlets because it just was unlike anything I was expecting. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, when I say outlets, I mean because I wanted to talk about it and write about it and all that, those sorts of things. Sure. Anyway, um, and then you know some time passed and it was nominated for this. Uh, it was long listed for the Giller Prize. What did that nomination mean to you? Um, it was tremendously surprising and joyful (laughs) in a nutshell um it it was out for a while that the key here is that uh how to get along with women actually came out its official release date was october 1st of 2012 which is actually the first day of the new prize year so um oh okay so so which is why it seemed like it was out for a while um and you know and, and i was with a really uh great but small independent press and visible publishing um, who were very supportive of me. And we actually had great uptake considering it was a small press and a book of short stories. We had really good uptake all year. You know, I did Ottawa Writers Fest and, and I went to Thin Air International Festival in Winnipeg and, and lots of stuff. And the book was reviewed lots of places um, and, you know, fair and well-reviewed pretty much everywhere, which was great. Um, but I really wasn't thinking about prizes just because it was, it was, you know, it was a small press and, and also it had been out for a really long time. Um, so yeah, when the Giller long list happened, it was, you know, shocking, but, uh, sort of, you know, an incredibly good shock and the, the very, the very best kind. Do you know, and I, I don't mean to get too inside baseball here, but I'm just curious is, is, with the with a lot of music prizes, for example, you, a lot of people don't realize this, but the artists have to apply or the label, you know, they, they've got to apply to be nominated. Mm-hmm. Is that the case with the Giller? Yeah, it's the case with um, with most literary prizes. Your publisher has to submit the book. Right. So the so Invisible submits the book, probably yeah. not expecting much at that point uh, in its existence, right? Just because of, of its size, not not a, out of any. Yeah, lack no, no, of... but and it's because that's the thing you do. You know, whether you know you're a large press or an independent press, that's what you're doing. Yeah. You're hoping to, you know. So you're, and, and I, you know, my my publisher at. Um, at Invisible, who's Robbie McGregor, had said to me, you know, the book's going to be submitted to all the prizes, blah, blah. And I said, well, that's great. You know, <laughs> well, what I actually thought at the time was um, I knew the Giller is uh, very transparent about who their jury is. And uh, so I knew who the jury was, and it included Margaret Atwood. And I actually said to to George, who's my, my now husband, I was going to say partner, but he's my husband now, um, I said, oh, you know what this means? It means Margaret Atwood will, will likely read 10 to 20% of my book. <laughs> um, so I was really excited just about that. <laughs> and do you, do, did you, have you had any interaction with her subsequent to the long list? Do you know? No, how, no, not at all. Not at all. You but, don't um, have a precise percentage of what she actually <laughs> consumed. Uh, no, but I'm obviously tremendously grateful to that jury. How has it impacted, uh, how has that nomination impacted your working life? Because one thing, you know, they always say it's an honor just to be nominated. But in Canada, I find that for any arts prize, if you're on a long list or a short list, it is really uh, beneficial to be nominated for these things. It does enhance your stature. Um, I mean, it's probably obvious that it would do that. But I, has that been the case for you as, as just being nominated for that Giller Prize uh, proven to be something very beneficial? Absolutely. Absolutely. It was the timing on it was also really good. Um, but uh, it, it, it absolutely, especially, I mean, I don't know, um, as, you know, speaking only from my perspective, I can say, especially as somebody at the very beginning of a career, um, to, to have your profile raised um, in such a quick, fast hurry was incredibly helpful. Um, and what I had actually, I'd been working, um, I'd been working on a, on a first draft of the novel over the previous year, um, which I guess I had started before I left in, I left Toronto. I, I guess I'd started it then. And, um, and then, you know, moved here and there was, you know, such a tremendous amount of work just, you know, doing the move and everything. And once we got to about January, um, George just 
you know, sort of gifted me five days away at a house on a cliff outside of town and said, you need to, you need to go write and you don't have to write. You just need, if you want to go read for five days, that's fine, but you need to, you need to do this again. Um, and which was a excellent, excellent kick in the ass. And, um, and I had all the permission in the world to just go do that. So I did. Um, and, uh, and that kind of like got me back into the, into writing. And then I, I sort of had this, this is, this is in the year, um, you know, between the release of How to Get Along with Women and, and the Giller nomination, um, I sort of had this, as I said, the, the book was being well-reviewed, everything was great, but it was with a small press and it was short stories. Um, and I had this panic that if I didn't produce a draft of a novel soon, that nobody would care. Right. That I, you know, it would just be forgotten and that perhaps, um, you know, my agent would lose interest <laughs> and, and um, you know, and you know, other anybody else who might be interested would also lose interest. Um, so I ended up sort of taking a, some, you know, putting some really serious hours in, and um, and really taking it seriously, and sort of pounding this first draft of the novel out. And my agent had it on her desk the day that the Giller nomination happened. So it was like shockingly good timing. <laughs> <laughs> it all worked out that way. So um, so yeah, it, it did have a pronounced effect. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, on you personally and obviously externally, people are paying attention to you more. Absolutely. Now, you mentioned that you were on Invisible Press and you are working for Backwater Books. These are two independent presses. Um, what's your relationship with Invisible at this point? Oh, it's really positive. Um, you know, the, the it's sort of run by a triumvirate, a, sort of a fabulous trio, um, Robbie McGregor and Nick Boshart and Megan Files. Um, and all of them were, have just been so wonderful through the whole process. And, and also, like, really um, honestly congratulating me on the sale of the novel. And, you know, we, we'd have a, continue to have a really nice relationship and... Um, the, the press is actually based in Halifax, so, you know, whenever I'm in Halifax or, or Robbie's here, we try and get together and have a beer, and it's, it's very friendly. It's lovely. Now, does, is this a case where because the book um, was sort of picked up by, you know, more mainstream uh, readers, uh, would, would someone else republish the book, you know, take it and put it out again? Um, I don't think so. Okay. I, I, I don't imagine that... that that's a way I would go. You know, this is Invisible's book. Okay. You know, it's, it's my book. It's my book I did with Invisible, and and we did a great job of it together. <laughs> <laughs> so you're leaving it alone. I just wonder. I mean, that's just a thing that I mean, there's a boring business question on some level, but I just <laughs> just was curious. All right. Well, that's good. So, and in your work with Backwater is principally your your publicist. You have nothing to do with their. No. Yeah. It's Breakwater. Oh, um, sorry. I said Backwater, didn't I? <laughs> it's kind of like a kind of a bad. From a publicity angle, that wouldn't be a great title. Back, um, backwater, is, it reminds me of backwash. It does, yes. doesn't, doesn't sound good. It's too fluidy. I think breakwater is way better. Okay, sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, um, yeah, no. I work as uh, mainly as a publicist for Breakwater Books. Uh, I, I'm chair a, a marketing position there with Megan Coles, who's a playwright. So, so she does half the job, and I do half the job. So you've got, uh, I, you got married. You've got two kids, but you you married into some other kids. Is that how that works? Yeah. You got four kids. We got four kids in the house all together. So you got four kids. You got this publicist job, which I assume is taking up a fair amount of your day every day. How do you find the time to write? Well, it's a good question. Um, I had a fairly intense couple of years. I've decided, like starting from the decision to move here and orchestrating the move. It's actually quite quite a job of work to move across the country. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I can see that. Out, yeah. Um, it's, it's something. Um, but, uh, it was actually, it was wonderful when I, when I first started at Breakwater, I was doing the job full time and it really was a lot. It was, it was sort of an excellent way to, to get grounded in a new community though, because, you know, I had a place to go every day and I had, you know, new people I was dealing with. And, and when you're working in publicity, so much of what you're doing is like event coordination and advertising. So I just had to know everybody right Right, away. Right. Um, so, you know, from that point of view, it was really lucky. And then, um, I guess starting, uh, just in January of this year, I've slacked it off. So that's why I'm now in job share, which is excellent. So I only work (laughs) in the office half time and I work as a writer half time. Right. Um, and so far so good. 
Okay, that's what you want. You want to figure out that balance of bringing in some some income. And George is a poet. You guys, I have to ask this because I go through this all the time. Yeah. The reality of raising a family when you have an artistic <laughs> impulse. I mean, at least in my case, you know, my wife has a re- she's in the arts on some level too, but it's like a pretty steady job. You, I, is, does George have some kind of job or does he, is he primarily a poet laureate? Can you make money being a poet laureate? I didn't even know that was a thing. You make, you make a little bit of coin as the poet laureate. Sure. <laughs> okay. So are you, are, is <laughs> it's it, not the whole job. Is it, uh, is it difficult? We do quite well. I, you know, it's, it's, it's really about balance. So sometimes, you know, sometimes you need to have a day job. Sometimes the day job has to be a full-time job. Sometimes the day job can be a part-time job. Um, you know, as I said, when I was in Toronto uh, for a long time, I didn't do, you know, a full-time out-of-the-house job, but I was working freelance all the time. And sometimes working freelance is actually harder on you, I think, as an artist, because you're spending so much time hustling work. Yeah. Um, that and that does not count as work time. So now I'm hustling work, and now I have to spend time doing the work. And then in whatever leftover moments of the day, then that's when I can pursue what I want to pursue. Um, so you know, we've had times when I was when I first moved out here. Both George and I were working full time in an office outside the house, um, and that's kind of waxed and waned as our fortunes have you know moved us. Um, so that right now I'm home half the time. He's working pretty much fully freelance at this point. Uh, and it's, you know, so far so good. Everything's working out great. To be honest with you, when you have a lot of kids, the more flexibility in some ways, the better. It's, you know, I, I actually find it really hard when everybody's working set hours at an office outside the house and you're, then, you're, then you're trying to coordinate schools yeah. and daycare. Who's going to be home and who has a key and who forgot their key and who forgot their lunch? It gets a bit trying and exhausting. Yeah. It's kind of nicer to have somebody home, you know, to to just have that flexibility. And, you know, in fairness, my kids, my own kids are um, are quite a bit older now. So I have a daughter who's 16 and a half and my son will be 14 next month. So they, you know, they require more in some ways, but less in the sort of, you know, actual hands-on caregiving, yeah. Um, yeah. you know. So, uh, but then we have an 11 year old and we have a six year old who just started grade one. So it's quite exciting around here. <laughs> well, thank you for fielding my period question about how you make <laughs> everything work. I'm just curious myself because I sometimes wonder how it's done. It's, you know, I think it's kind of hit and miss. And I think you kind of figure it out as you go along to a certain extent. And part of it is just there is a there is a level of this that's sort of mercenary. I, I sort of hit a moment. One of my best friends in life is, um, is an assistant crown attorney in Toronto and, um, and I've known her for a long, long time. And I remember having this moment when I was working on the novel and I was working full time and, and whatever else, instead of having this moment of thinking, you know, here's somebody who has a, has a lot of drive and, um, has a talent that nobody else has and went to school and trained. And now that is her job. And it means that on the weekend, you know, now I'm sure she has to bring home some work on the weekend sometimes, but on the weekend, she's not actually trying to do her other job. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, um, and to, and it, and I kind of went, huh, how am I going to work that out? And, and to a certain extent, it, I think that does drive you. I think it drives you as an artist a little bit to go, how am I going to find more time to work on my art? Yes. Um, how am I going to work smarter on the money jobs? Uh, I think that that just becomes kind of hit and miss. I think you, you sort of, you learn over time. And um, I know at one point I was trying to do this thing where I was working on the novel on Sundays, on Sunday afternoon from 12 to six, I was going to work on the novel. And um, we have a shared office, George and I here in the house. And I made a sign that just says no. And I taped it to the door. (laughs) So when the door is shut, all you see is this tremendous no, which means like whatever it is that you're going to knock on the door and ask me for, I can already give you the answer. The answer is no, you're not to knock on the door. You're not to bug me. You know, like those are my six hours. Um, that's harsh but necessary, I think. Well, you know what? It sort of became a bit of a joke, but everybody really respected it. <laughs> well, good for you. So that's what you you make the time by literally making the you carve out that time. Is someone yelling for you now? Uh, just hold on for a second. Could you go right upstairs and ask Silas just because someone's talking to me on the radio? Would that be cool? Thanks. Well done. Well handled. That wasn't quite a no. 
but it was close. Well, I'm in the dining room. It's kind of my own fault for not going in the no, no room. No, no, I understand. <laughs> now, what can you tell us? We, we hit upon the fear aspect. Well, what can you actually tell us at this point about your new novel, The Devil You Know? Um, well, I'm super excited about it. So it comes out here in Canada um, and in the States uh, in January. Uh, in Canada, I'm with Patrick Crean Editions at HarperCollins and in the States with Simon & Schuster. Um, it is a literary thriller. Uh, and I, I'm a little surprised that I wrote a thriller, but I kind of love that I wrote a thriller too. Wow. Huh. Um, so it's, uh, I can tell you it's, it's set in Toronto, um, in February, 1993. And the main action of the novel is kind of happening in the week before and the week after, uh, Paul Bernardo is arrested for the murders of Kristen French and Leslie Mahaffey. Um, Whoa. and the, the main character, um, is a, is a rookie reporter. And I think maybe that's all I'll tell you for now. You have to wait, Ray. And I'll, I'll send you a book. <laughs> that sounds thrilling. I mean, you've, you've definitely made it sound thrilling. I'll tell you that. <laughs> Good job. It also sounds very dark. Well, I, I'm surprised. I'm not that surprised. It seems like that would be within you. You're a little dark, Elizabeth, if I might say. I am a little dark, it's true. like a little bit. For someone so happy-go-lucky on so many levels. You know, I'm actually very optimistic. I'm a, I'm a shock. I was actually called a Pollyanna. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> one of George, George used to live in New York City, and one of his friends from that time came up um, for the wedding and referred to me as a Pollyanna. <laughs> <I was> like, <laughs> well, that's nice. It's good. I mean, that's actually good. You have an outlet for the dark darkness, in a, in a sense, in your writing, and you can la 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 all the all the rest of the time. Exactly. That yeah. is mostly what I like. <laughs> la la la. Yeah. <laughs> So I think we've touched upon so many things, but is there anything you've you've submitted this novel? It should be out in January. What's next for you? Well, I I suppose I'll have to write another book. You kind of have you <laughs> kind of have to, don't you? Yeah. Well, that that's the plan for sure. Um, you know, I sort of, as I said, I sort of gave myself a little bit of a break. I'd love to write a few short stories. It's interesting now, though, because I I was so anxious about the idea of writing a novel um and now i i'm starting to feel like that's the form i think in best mm, you know mm. um so I, I don't know what kind of writing project will come next um i you know i have another novel sort of in the very back of my head and i've just been letting it sit there through the last few months um which have been busy you know in their own way and yeah. you know, in that i've you know have a job and and orchestrated this wedding which was really fun um <laughs> but I, I began to realize that I got to a point where every time somebody said, so what's the new novel going to be about? I just like go off and do like a little hand stamped wedding craft. <laughs> <laughs> Good procrastination there. That's like a wedding's yeah. a big project too. You can't waste, you got to be organized with the wedding. You do, you do. So, um, yeah, we had a great time, but now that's all done. So aside from writing thank you notes, which I imagine I will uh, Oh, man, I I forgot about that. That's super time-consuming. Yeah, well, exactly. That will take up a lot of my time, you know. So aside from that, I guess it'll be time to to get going on something new. Maybe you can start writing short stories in the thank you notes. Just like... An excerpt from each... Never mind. Forget it. Why am I telling you what to do? You come, I'm just trying to come up with ways you can kill two birds with one stone. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> Once again, I want to tell folks that Elizabeth de Mariafi's latest book is How to Get Along with Women, and it's uh, out now via Invisible Publishing. She appears at the Eden Mills Writers' Festival on Sunday, September 14th. Uh, for more information, you can visit EdenMillsWritersFestival.ca. Elizabeth, where can people go to... Is there like an online hub for your work? Um, <laughs> I'm actually just getting my website revamped, so it's down right now, but it, I, I will eventually have a website up again, um, which would just be elizabethmariaffi.com. Um, and then aside from that, I can go to Invisible's website or, um, for how to get along with women, um, or there'll be more and more information, of course, about the new book at HarperCollins. Okay. So it's invisiblepublishing.com and then Harper, yep. HarperCollins. All right. Uh, Elizabeth, thank you so much uh, again for the chat. I really enjoyed it, and I, I hope you did too, and I wish you the best of luck with everything. Thanks, Vish. It was really fun. Hey, thanks again for checking out Creative Control with Vish Khanna. You can email me about the show at creativecontrol933 at gmail.com. That's creative with a K, control with a K, 933 at gmail.com. You can also follow our Twitter at Vish Creative, V-I-S-H-K-R-E-A-T-I-V-E. 
And you can also like our Facebook page. A version of this show airs on CFRU in Guelph every Wednesday at noon Eastern. And you can listen to that online at CFRU.ca or if you're in the KW region at 93.3 FM in Guelph. You can also sign up for the weekly mailing list for the podcast and the, and the show at vishkana.com and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. I believe that is everything I wanted to tell you. Thank you once again. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.